Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Michael Pakalik. He is Professor of Ethics and Social Philosophy at the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and is also a member of the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Deacon Jeff. It's a real pleasure to join you on your show. A couple months ago, you wrote an article entitled uh, The Four Deaths, and, and, and you start the article with all of us face multiple deaths even before we depart this life, so we do, would do better if we willingly embrace them. But in a culture that is so selfish as opposed to selfless, that becomes even a harder task, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Feels to idealism, especially the idealism of men. I mean, that piece was circulated and linked to by Catholic Loop, and I don't know the guys behind it, but I think it's you know some ex-military and and FBI and that kind of thing. And um, you know, this idea that you're here to give your life on, you put your life on the line to serve and protect others. That that's deeply appealing to men, in particular. Uh, well, it has been in, in the past. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. men have been so feminized and 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 let themselves be taken advantage of. And really, it's men's fault themselves that the heroic yeah. male, the male, the protector seems to be a lot harder to find than it used to be, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, yes, that's true. A lot of guys are playing video games into their 30s and, and not doing very much at all to help anyone. So this is one of those areas where Christianity has to inject some real truth into society, as it's done throughout the centuries. Well, and if somebody is going to die to self, right, it really shows how much we love Christ. So if we're living a life uh, absence of Christ in it, then to die to self doesn't really make any sense to anybody, does it? Yeah, I mean, I think so. So it's either Christ or it's uh you know, the Leviathan of political society. So the Greeks understand it as we're all parts of this bigger whole, and so the part sacrifices itself for the whole. We've kind of given up on that. I mean, it's still true that the common good of our country is greater than my good, and that each of us should be prepared to give his life for his country. Um, but that, because we're so scattered, we're so individualized, and there's such a kind of ethic of um, kind of relation of equals, that that's very hard for people to grasp. Maybe in a time of war, if we come back to a World War II type situation, people grasp that more easily. So, But just in ordinary peaceful life, that's almost incomprehensible to people. So I think you're right. And and this article came out of my meditation on Liguori's uh, treatise on the passion and death of, of Jesus Christ, which is fantastic. I can't recommend that enough to your listeners. And he again and again says, if our Lord took on flesh in order to give up his life for you, the proper response of a Christian is to give up your life in return out of gratitude to our Lord. That's like the fundamental attitude of a Christian is to want to show gratitude for being saved by giving up your own life for our Lord. Well, I think your point's well taken because... Right. Christ is the model for us. It's not like we have to search, geez, how do I do this, right? All we have to do is read yeah. the scriptures and learn the life of Christ. It's all laid out in front of us. 
Yeah, and and as I said in that column, you know, John Paul II used to love quoting Gaudium at best number 22, that each of us finds the true meaning of his life through a sincere gift of self. And sincere gift of self sounds very, very nice, but you know when you kind of think about what it has to mean, in the end it has to mean giving up your life. So, um, you know, that's kind of, in a Christian life, the charity, the two precepts of charity, really do weave into the warp and woof of ordinary life, this idea of dying to self. Well, so the, first, the, the, the first yeah. death I talk about in the column is, is baptism. So baptism is, is uh, you know, I have been crucified with Christ, St. Paul says, that you, when you, you know, the, the baby or even adults uh, immersed or, or the water poured, poured over the baby, it represents a, a death. And the coming out of the waters represents, just like the baptism of our Lord, which he wanted to prefigure his passion, it represents um, new life. In Christ, but the the precondition of that new life is is a death, and, and you know, a death means you count as nothing the things in the world. There are a lot of people who have say been on a deathbed or been close to death, or and they're rescued somehow, or they're saved, or their illness reverses suddenly, and then they have this tremendous detachment from life. It's they don't feel to appreciate. In fact, they appreciate it much more. Like everything strikes and it's miraculous. At the same time, they count it as nothing because they understand what's really important through that near-death experience. And that's what baptism really is spiritually for us. Well, and when we die to self in baptism, which we all need to do because of the stain of original sin, right, we receive so much more, right? The seeds of faith, hope, and love, the theological virtues, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that willingness yeah. to die to self, we receive many gifts in return, don't we? Yep. And, you know, now the parable from Luke comes in about the, the, the investments and you've been given these talents and what do you do with it? And one thing you can do is just kind of selfishly, you know, hoard it. Um, but the way in which you make it really fruitful is through another death to self. And that comes to young people. It should in the ordinary course of things when they're early 20s. And they're discerning what we, we call discerning a vocation. Is it going to be to marriage? Is it going to be some kind of celibate, single lifestyle and service of God? And that's a, that implies another death to self, because you're no longer your own. If you marry, you're not really your own. I say in the article, the two people who walk away from the altar after they've been married have to be related to the two who approached it before the ceremony in the same way as, as life to death. They have to have been put to death through the marriage ceremony so that they're no longer individuals actually they die as individuals and they they come back to life as one flesh that has to be a real death to self and well, and i think i do think yeah i do think that's hard for people because they're not practicing the first kind of death that we were discussing in baptism well and you even mentioned in the article i think it was your daughter who was getting married and the priest mentioned am i late for the funeral or something to that regard right and that kind of woke you up you had to think about what he was saying right yeah, the coast the coast celebrant called in to the answering machine back then, the answering machine, and said, you know, I'm going to be just in there, just 15 minutes there before the funeral. And you know, of course, he does lots of funerals because he's a parish priest, but uh, he'd kind of slipped. And the, uh, the the presiding priest, who was actually Father Scalia, Father Paul Scalia, perhaps known to some of your listeners, turned that into the subject of the homily. <laughs> I learned a lot from that. Yeah, wedding is very close to a funeral. Actually, it needs to be. Well, and I think, you know, any of us who, who are married, you know, we realize that 
if we go into the marriage that it's all about us, then it's never going to be a successful marriage, right? It's all about what is in the best interest of us together, as opposed to feeding my wants and needs. It's really about, as you mentioned, dying to self and how to, if we love somebody, right, it's to will the good of the other, not to will our own good, right? You know, there's this language of flourishing and self-actualization, which people use for happiness, and it's true ultimately, but it's also can be misleading because the way in which you actualize yourself is by giving up your life. So, you know, as our Lord says, the one who will lose his life will save it. And how many times in marriage are, are you a married deacon? Uh, yes. Deacon Jeff? Yes. Yeah, so you yeah. know how many times in marriage during the day you have to do something which you think is actually maybe even completely wrong. Like I didn't really do this wrong thing or I wasn't really insensitive or I didn't really make a mistake, but your you know, your wife insisted this. And you you just go a long way that you just sacrifice yourself through a kind of fiat and then it you probably find out you were wrong and she was right. But that has to happen, you know, maybe even on a daily basis, certainly once a week. That happens to me. So that constant death to self is really important to marriage. Well, I, I am a very slow learner, Michael. So it took me many years <laughs> to wake up and understand that uh, it isn't, you know, the world does not revolve around me. And the more that I die to self and give up, actually the happier and, and the closer our relationship is, you know, is. And we've been married for well over 30 years and I can say unequivocally that our marriage is stronger today than it was those first few years of marriage because it takes slow pokes like me a while to wake up and understand, hey, knucklehead, it's not about you. Amen. Right. And so the third death I discuss is the reception of a child. And I drew a little bit on psychological literature. You know, psychologists or social scientists, are, are, you know, they study reports of self-satisfaction among couples. And as soon as the first child comes around, everybody reports that they're, they're deeply unhappy, that they're, they believe their relationship has been destroyed. And um, so I, in my article, I say, well, you know, actually, there, there's truth to that, because to accept a child means, like, I have children, and for each of my children, it's true that I would give up my life to protect them and save them. You know, if a car was coming at them and I'd jump in front of the car to save them, I would do that without, I hope, without hesitation, right? So it's kind of built into being a parent, this preparedness to sacrifice yourself. So it's true that to accept a child means to accept a willingness to die for the child. And you know what? That's why, you know, legal abortion and promiscuous society go hand in hand. Because if you're hooking up with somebody and you're, you're drunk, you don't even know the person's name, and you conceive a child, like the idea that you should now be prepared to give up your life for this child, for somebody you, you kind of just barely met, it really doesn't make any sense. The only, the only place where childbearing makes sense is really within lifelong marriage, where that other death has taken place. So this is this is the thing that no one really discusses in connection with Dobbs and pro-life and so on. But it really is you cannot separate a kind of ethic of chastity from abortion. The two, it doesn't really go together well, this idea that you have a lifelong commitment to your to your child if it comes from a meaningless hookup, which it does in so many cases. It's hard to make sense of that. Like a bare right to life, yeah, should sustain us, but it ought to be something more than that. Well, and also, right, we also have all these people now we're going to, you know, uh, same sex couples, you know, buying their children. We have surrogacy. We have all these things. 
it's almost like children become a commodity and who's going to give up their life for a commodity, right? We give up our life for another yeah. human being, not for some designer child that we bought off the shelf because we thought it would fit what we want. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. So, you know, just, I meant, did mention justice Kennedy's re-engineering of marriage um, in my piece. And, you know, after a while, if it's only like 10% of the people in society or maybe 5% understand marriage and childbearing the right way, it it no longer can have much coherence in society as a whole. As you say, the whole outlook shifts and now children become commodities. And so that uh, that third death is um, is something that people don't even encounter because you don't, as you say, you don't die for a commodity. And then there's the fourth death I mentioned in the article. This is the inevitable death. This is the death that you know, all God will impose on all of us, whether we will or, or won't. And, um, the, you know, the other three, in a certain sense, preparation for that. But all the saints say that if you're pretty, you know, accomplished in dying before your natural death, um, which could be a violent death, but, you know, your God, God-sent death, um, it should be something actually not to fear. And, um, you know, a kind of welcoming of, uh, of uh, you hope entering into the kingdom. So, um, yeah, so those are the four deaths I discuss in my piece. Yeah, and I think, you know, the important thing to remember is those first three are voluntary, and we get to choose yeah. those. And, and how we how we die and how we handle them, right, we can't earn our way to heaven is through God's grace, but we can and must participate. And we do participate through the deaths that we endure throughout our life, how we give up things for children, for spouse, and for God himself. And if we can't do that, then... The final death and that outcome isn't going to be too good, is it? Yeah, I mean, Tolstoy said that we die in the manner in which we live, and um, you know, Socrates said if we're, if death is a practice for dying, well, then dying, you know, if life is a practice of dying, then death shouldn't be that hard for us. But you know, one of the things I bring on the piece is like, what is courage? And I think that's why the uh, the Catholic loop really liked it because there's kind of two models of courage. One is um, absence of fear, and the other is being afraid, but being steadfast in holding your position, even though you are afraid. And the Christian notion of fear, which our Lord um, or courage, right, is which our Lord presents, is different from both of those. It's not absence of fear. And this is something that Thomas More brought out in the garden. Our Lord was very much afraid of dying, and it's not mere resistance. On standing firm, even though you're afraid, because as Liguori points on his meditations, our Lord eagerly went out and sought death. Right, so he, he you know, he goes and he says, "Let us go. My my betrayer is approaching, or I have desired with desire uh, to to eat this pasch with you, which stands for his his death." It's something that he. You know, it seems almost incomprehensible, but, you know, then we think about the, actually the, the, you know, the, the deeper idealism of, we do appreciate it. You know, I actually end the piece with this, let's roll, you know, the famous statement of United Airlines, I think mm-hmm. it was 93, you know, the yeah. man who they decided, well, there's no choice. This is plane is either going to crash into something in the capital or it's going to crash here in the farmlands. Once you make that decision and you realize you have to go forward with your plan, then it's eager. Let's roll. Let's get on with it. Let's not delay. And so, you know, I think a Christian in, with the same kind of uh, manly, if you will, idealism should say uh, these four deaths, if, you know, three of them are voluntary, as you said, but they're practically speaking necessary if you want to be a Christian. 
And then the fourth is coming to us willy-nilly. Let's get on with it. Let's roll. Let's well, embrace think, death the way our Lord, our Lord did. Yeah, and I think, you know, I watched the interview you did with Ralph Martin about a year or so ago. And, you know, it's not only, it's not only our own death, and it was a great interview because you gave a lot of insight into your life, right? You, you experienced tragedy within your family. You had a child who died of crib, crib death, I think, as you said, at seven yeah. months, a wife who passed weeks, from cancer. Yeah. Or seven weeks, excuse me. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and a wife who passed from, uh, I think it was breast cancer. It, it really yeah. is this understanding of death and how we handle these voluntary deaths that not only is it our own death, it could be the death of those close to us, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. In some cases, that can be harder. Uh, once a spiritual director said to me, you know, it's harder to look at suffering than to go through it in many cases, because the person who's going through it gets graces to go through it. But it's not not really any such category. It's graces to observe suffering. So it can be worse to watch it. Right. And it is, you know, it, it, and we all do it, right? We've, we all lose ones close to us uh, throughout our lives. And it is Hard, but it is it, that understanding of not only the voluntary deaths, but Christ's death and opening up heaven for all of us that we have that hope, that theological virtue that we were given to be with him for all eternity. So even death here on earth isn't the end. And we need to understand that the Lord opened up something even greater for us if we live these voluntary deaths the way we're called. You know, something that we need to do if we want to be kind of moderately well-educated or generally educated, we have to understand how our generation fits in with the kind of common experience of humankind and make corrections accordingly. So, for example, I've been reading Anna Smith's Wealth of Nations this summer. Again, I actually have never read it all the way through. And he is talking about, you know, what a living wage is for a family. And he mentions that it's not common, uncommon for a woman in the highlands of Scotland to have 20 children, but only two of them will make it to adulthood. And he thinks in Eng England, the figure is, you know, maybe to have 10 children and five make it to adulthood. But we're talking about, um, you know, only the seven, late 1700s, and the majority of someone's children would die before they became adults. Uh, so, and you talk about observing death, how difficult is it to watch the death of one of your children? This is a correction we have to make. We have to understand that we are living in a society where, unlike almost every other culture, we do not, on a kind of regular basis, witness the death, of, especially of ones close to us. And, you know, just think of how you know, that woman with the 20 children in the Highlands, she's giving testimony to the value of life despite the reality of death. Because she continues generously, even to risk her own life in, in, in labor, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, and her, she knows her heart is going to be broken most of the time, but still uh, goes forward. I, it's deeply uh, impressive, I think. Uh, but that's something yeah. we lack. We, we sanitize our lives, and we don't even like going to cemeteries you know, to, to honor the dead or pray for no, them. I mean yeah, and we live in a world that if you get a splinter, you're running to the doctor. I mean, right? We don't like pain. We don't like yeah. uh, suffering. We, we do everything we can to avoid it. But I think, you know, reading this article, you know, the four deaths, it, it reminds us of embracing the cross of Christ because we can't get to Christ without the cross. And so to run from it, to hide from it, to, to hate it really keeps us from growing in our love for Christ to be able to deal with the things that are going to that life is going to throw at us. Right. Yep. Yep. And as painful as those times are, and you mentioned two very painful times in my life, 
um, I look back on them and I certainly see if you're open to God's grace and you walk along with our Lord, that you are given a lot of graces through these sufferings. Yeah. And we need, and we need those graces, right? We can't, I mean, to look at the world in which we live today, it, nothing makes sense without Christ and to live the life he's calling us to without grace is impossible. So we receive that grace through the sacraments and we need that grace to help us draw closer and to live the life and to view life as a gift, right? Not as this uh, something that, you know, I just have to endure and I just hope I can get as much out of it for me as I can. Exactly. Life as a gift. Yeah. And I think, you know, talking about, you know, Scotland and England and, you know, what the families and the difficulty, uh, you know, it's hard to even imagine that, but, Again, depending on where we live, we, we have to deal and, you know, the time period in which we live, we deal with what's given us. But it does put things in perspective about, uh, you know, how much today's society needs to grow and appreciate the gift of life and every minute because nobody's guaranteed tomorrow and to live a life dedicated to, to service. And I think your four deaths, the voluntary deaths and then the, the, the ultimate death that, you know, because of the sin in the garden uh, is something we all will face. And I guess the question is, how are we going to face it, right? Yep, exactly. By the way, when most human beings are dying before they get to adulthood, it really changes the meaning of life. Like The natural inference to make there is that childhood is sufficient. Like if you've lived to be, say, 10 years old, you've, you've lived a good life. It's Just think of how different that is from our world of, you know, getting into elite universities and what is my salary going to be in my first job. And um, it's a lot truer to say that the way a five-year-old is living is the summit of human life than to say that all these successful things make a summit of human life. Then successful things are great, but spiritual childhood is really important, more important. Absolutely. And then, and I think that, you know, brings to light, you know, that, that death when we have children, right? Our, our desire, our goal as parents is to help our children get to heaven, not to be successful in a material world. And we, we lose track of that because we want to get them in the best schools. They have the best education, the best jobs, best homes. And we lose track of, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, all that is is empty and you don't know how to handle it when you get it anyway, if you don't have that base of Christ, right? Yes. Yes. How true. Yeah, that's very true. You know, our Lord's word in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom and and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. And that's so true also. Like, as Liguori says, count all of those things as nothing, and, uh, and you'll get them back in abundance. You know, we, we hear, again, all this stuff is, is down for us. We don't have to try to figure out how to live or what we should do. The Lord tells us all about it. He, he warns us of the evil one who's trying to sidetrack us and and not die to self and, and live just for self. And I think, yeah. you know, your article helps people put things in perspective in terms of, you know, this self being selfless list instead of selfish and you know, we live in a world where everybody wears their emotions on their sleeves and me, myself and I are my three favorite people. And we need to be able to overcome that. If not, we're going to have mighty sad lives. It's a world of tremendous narcissism. People want to be liked. They, they wake up and they check how many people have viewed their posts and 
it's um, yeah, this really uh, over the top. In that interview you did with Ralph, and we only have a couple minutes to go. You mentioned that you know sure. all your all your children are still practicing the faith. I know you, you have grandchildren. I mean, how rewarding is it to see children and grandchildren with a faith that you worked hard to instill upon them, even though they had to still embrace it themselves? Yeah, um, that's so, you know, in a way that's mysterious and it's miraculous. I don't think, you know, any parents can claim credit for that sort of thing. Um, Obviously, a lot of prayer and mortification has to underlie it, but we're all working at that. I like to say that, um, you know, in the parable of the prodigal son, there were two sons and, you know, one stayed with the father and the other, you know, went off the reservation but clearly the father represents God. So his, his, you know, his batting record was 500 and that was a father who represents God. I mean, we do have freedom and the world is a tough place. The world is a place that's almost designed, so to speak, to snag people and draw them away from practicing the Christian faith. So um, this is all real, but um, I want to say for your listeners, I really do think that uh, the most important thing is, is education and a strong household culture which uh, has a certain kind of, um, I mean, don't, don't read this wrong way, but kind of contempt for a lot of the bad and low culture of the world. So it's the way people used to say, you know, I'm a, you know, let's just say somebody's last name is Nelson. I'm a Nelson. Nelsons never do anything like this. There has to be a sense within the family of, you know, what is reasonable and proper conduct so that children can be kind of dismissive of, of things that are in accord with that. They do it in in all different realms. You know, my my kids are strong golfers, but you know, if somebody's going to play golf and not follow the rules, they would just completely write them off. They'd have no patience for that whatsoever. So it can be it can be learned this kind of re- without dismissiveness of things that are really too low for Christians. And I think that's that's a really good point to bring up. To that, you know, it does make a difference. You know, we don't have magic as parents, but what we say and do does matter, and there are seeds that we plant. As we wrap things up, how can people follow what you're doing, Michael? Well, the four deaths, I would really recommend meditating on the passion death of our Lord, and I would say go to crucifix and spend a lot of time meditating on the crucifix, but then also this book by St. Alphonsus Liguori, which is an old tan publication, The Passion and Death of Our Lord Jesus. I mean, that's just fantastic. I mean, any time of the year in Lent, a lot of people will read a book like that, but just keep it with you. Like St. Bonaventure, when he was asked by Thomas Aquinas where he acquired all of this wisdom, he just pointed the crucifix by meditating on this. I think that's true of all Christians. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.